0: visiting with us, we've been studying the life of David and many things God exhibits to His people through that life, one of the fullest biographies we have of anyone in the entire Bible. And it is so full that we have to sometimes condense what is happening uh, from several chapters into one message, which is the case today, and I think we'll be with a couple more as we head towards the conclusion of this series in the first Sunday of June. But we're looking at 2 Samuel 15 today, and I need to just quickly glance back so you get a little context. We were in chapter 12 the last time we were together as David was recovering from a great sin in his life of both adultery and planned murder, brought a true repentance. We looked at Uh, Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance. But consequences continued out of his family issues, especially having so many wives and so many sons and daughters by all those wives. And uh, just a quick recap or something you haven't read, chapter 13 is a dark and terrible chapter. If you can call something from God's Word terrible, the human actions are terrible as One of David's sons, Amnon, uh, desires and thinks he loves a stepsister, Tamar. He has an uh, assault on her, and Absalom, her brother, by the same mother, uh, vows to kill Amnon and does so uh, within chapter 13, one of the really awful incidences that takes place. And then Absalom flees and is away for a couple years as an exile. He comes back, and chapter 14 tells of him being about two full years. 1428 says he lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. He knew he had done wrong. David knew he had done wrong, yet he could not formally, legally punish his son Absalom, so he left him in a kind of limbo which ended at the end of chapter 14 when he finally welcomed him but it was a chilly sort of welcome not a reconciliation and let me begin reading at 2nd Samuel 15:1 after this absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him and absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I would give him justice. So, whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it goes on to say here how he went down to Hebron and had himself declared to be king, and a number of people followed him. I'm picking it up in verse 13 reading through 30. And the messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and he left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pilethites, and the six hundred Gittites who followed him from Gath passed on before the King. When the king said to Itai, the man of Gath, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the new king, for you are a foreigner and an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives. Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimez, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, and see, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. But David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is the word of God. The poet Coleridge once had a comment in one of his poems on friendship in which he called a friend a sheltering tree. Picture a huge oak tree in the middle of a field on a hot day. And what a desirable place that might be to gather in its shade and rest under the cooling of such a shelter. Friends can be like that when people have a great need. Jesus certainly found a circle of friends around him in the midst of his stressful ministry, people who gave him hospitality and met practical needs for him or just accepted him and allowed him to rest. Certainly, friends are indeed sheltering green trees in time of need. David the king had some unlikely but staunch friends who stood by him, in this hour of crisis that we've read about today in 2 Samuel 15. It's ironic that those friends, or the best of them, were outsiders, even foreigners, when the ones rejecting him and presenting opposition to him were primarily from his own household, and particularly his son and heir, Absalom. David here was recovering from his mighty sins committed before God. He had repented. He had met the grace of God. He had bowed himself in a very sincere way. But he was still recovering from consequences which flowed out of these acts and out of these many marriages that we've commented before. God never put a stamp of approval on David having seven or more wives and all the children that resulted. And in fact, this silent fact of what this brought about Of great struggle in his household in years to come showed the disapproval of God. And here now is his home shattered in a sense as a son rebels against him. And the question is whether David is going to be able to trust God in this hour. How is he going to face it? And I'm asking the ultimate question today about who, if anyone, is going to stand with the true king in such an hour. One of the Bible's real tragic family stories on this day that we think about families a lot on Mother's Day is David's relationship to his son Absalom. David apparently never stopped loving this handsome son. We're going to see that in a week to come. If they had high school yearbooks when Absalom was around, I'm pretty sure he got the most likely to succeed award. He was handsome, he was a warrior. Even his, his luxuriant hair is commented upon, and if you know the story, you know that caused him a real problem in the end. But the one thing we know about him was that Absalom seemed to have grown up without any significant fatherly discipline. That seems to be an area where David flunked pretty badly, limiting, holding back, simply modeling for his son's the kinds of discipline they would need if they were ever to become rulers like their father. And we find, as I mentioned in the recap, that Absalom killed his stepbrother Amnon for a terrible sexual assault upon Absalom's sister Tamar, as told in chapter 13. He had become an exile, and he greatly, deeply resented being exiled for from his father for doing something that he felt was morally right. And dad simply didn't accept him, didn't welcome him in court for two years. And by the time he finally did, when Absalom more or less demanded it at the end of chapter 14, it was not a time when a true reconciliation could come about. Deep down, David felt, I believe, that he deserved this bitter pill of family fracturing that came to him And although he was God's appointed king, we see him deeply humbled. And the actions that he takes today are those of a mature man who is no longer arrogant and independent, asserting himself against God. There's an amazing scene here in verse 15. As the king hears that Absalom has now declared himself king and Interestingly, he chose to do it in Hebron, the very place where David was first crowned king. That was deliberate, I'm sure. And Absalom said, I'm the king. Come to me, all you who want to follow and and get a new kind of justice and a new kind of rule. And it appeared that there was quite a popular swing to go to this young man. Hundreds who had hailed David as Israel's great king and sung his praises in earlier decades now said, well, let's have a young king. Let's have a new king. Let's have a new outlook. David seems like a toothless lion now, and he's mired in his family problems. He's not the king we want anymore. Incredibly, David hears of this. And I think you should be astonished as we read what I did beginning at verse 13 of chapter 15. David hears of Absalom declaring himself king, and he doesn't say, "Well, let's mount a, a you know a defense. I'm the rightful king. I, I hate to go to war to my with my son, but it looks like I have to." No, he just says, "Let's clear out. Absalom's going to come. He's going to bring an army against Jerusalem. Let's get out of his way." It seems like uh, almost like a coward's action that David commits here, but our text raises a theme that you might say is a minor point. I think the major point of this text is the humility of David, the mature man who has been brought low by God's discipline and by confession of his own sin and how how much more mature he is spiritually. That's probably the main point of this chapter. But I'm going to put focus before we finish today on a more secondary point perhaps, and that is upon who identifies and stands with A rejected king. And I'm going to bring you to conclude, I hope, that you might see that willingness to take a firm stand beside a Lord who is unwanted by multitudes is a crucial test still put before us in the Christian life today. How many of us will prove in the end to be as loyal to our heavenly king as one rather obscure man named Ittai did here in this forgotten page of the Old Testament. Before us is a story with tangled layers and many psychological nuances, and I've tried to give you just a thumbnail sketch of it. But the heading we give to this sad tale as we look at it first today and think of what is going on is to call it the first point, a son who spit in his father's eye. Now, unlike David, Absalom, as far as we can tell, had no lively, true faith in God. He, he uh, pulled a subterfuge here in chapter 15, verse 7, when I didn't read that verse, when it sa- he said, please let me go pay a vow to the Lord in Hebron. That was a joke. Absalom didn't serve the Lord at any time that we can see anywhere. He was going to Hebron because to be declared king there was to be declared king where his father was, and it was a sharp stick in his father's eye for sure. We know what he had done. We know all about his killing of his stepbrother and his exile and how that caused him to brood and be resentful that he wasn't immediately just forgiven. Shouldn't the king have even said, Absalom, in light of the cause of it, uh, yeah, it's a bad thing to kill a stepbrother, but in light of your provocation, I understand. David didn't say that. The problem was he didn't say anything. Well, finally, this young man decided, either the king receives me or he executes me, but don't leave me in limbo. And he demanded to see the king at the end of 14. Joab was a go-between. Absalom was brought. David bowed before him and kissed him, but it was too little, too late. So we have a chapter… 15, Absalom's presidential campaign. You heard of folks who've thrown their hat in. Well, Absalom threw his hat in the ring. I'm running. I'm running for my father's place of government. And you see how he does it, master politician. He got himself a nice brand-new chariot. He got 50 men that we could hire. I imagine he had some access to wealth, and he hired 50 soldiers, had flashy uniforms made for them, stood at the city gate where he would be absolutely prominent. The city gate was a place, often the place where minor matters almost like a common court where the elders of the city could be consulted about uh, matters of judgment or an appeal could be made that would would go up to the king if it had to. Well, there was Absalom hearing the case saying, too bad my father doesn't have somebody who's really ready and willing and sympathetic to hear your case, my brother. I would deal with it if I had the authority. If I were king, I bet he kissed quite a few babies there at the city gate, as a matter of fact. And he got his image out on posters all around town. If I were king… It doesn't take too long for something like that to begin to stir the public imagination. He was a media darling. He was handsome. He spoke well. And perception is all you really need to affect. Style, not substance, is what people are very often after. You know that only too well in the American political arena. I don't have to bring about examples. Absalom knew that all he had to do was plant the idea, plant the seed. I would do a better job for you. And by comparison, David appeared washed up. Why would this unambitious, middle-aged king be kept when you could have me, charismatic, energetic, handsome, waiting to take over? And so Absalom had himself declared king as we see. Well, at first, it wasn't easy to tell. Uh, Where was the majority? Where would most of the people swing? Would they go with the young man? Would they stay loyal to David? What would happen? It was sure that a civil war was about to ensue, and it did ensue. And we'll see some of that next time. But I tell you, and I would think you probably asked yourself too when I read this chapter, if you're not familiar with this text, Why in the world would the established king immediately say, Arise and let us flee, or there'll be no escape for us? It seemed like David was in the strong position. He held Jerusalem, which was a walled city. We know from other things in Scripture it was a hard city to attack. The walls were high. The geography was such that it was not an easy city to invade. I would tell you several things, though, when you begin to think about it, why David ordered this immediate evacuation. And one of the chief of them is that it's an illustration that all of his haughtiness and arrogance, the the same things that his son was showing, are drained away from David now. He certainly had his share of ego and pride in earlier times. He was a warrior. Why wouldn't he fight? Well, we think because God had brought him low. God had definitely humbled him in the things that he had done and the things he had had to confess. And so now he's, he's a more supple man in terms of listening to God and considering that his own position might not be right. But a big thing, and it is actually hinted at here, is at the end of verse 14 that I read, that uh, Absalom would bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David was saying, if we wanted Jerusalem to be a battleground, Absalom will be glad to have that happen. But let us spare the people, let us spare the general populace and your homes and, and businesses and everything else from being destroyed and burned needlessly in this kind of a war. If I take myself out of the city, Absalom will just march in peacefully and he won't want to or won't need to try to destroy the city. But not the least reason why he left, I think, is as a humbled and forgiven man before God, he was saying, I am putting this whole matter into the hands of God. Do you see what he did there when they brought out the ark of God? I think that's a very telling part of this text. The priests and levites certainly thought, well, the king's going, we go where the king does. The ark of God is the visible symbol of the presence and blessing of God on the nation so if the king leaves, we leave. And they came out, but they got to the edge of the city, and David said to the priest, take the ark back. Did you wonder why he was saying that? If I'm discerning the text correctly, I believe he was saying, look, you all know what the ark represents. It's the visible symbol of God's presence. But I know God is with me. I know God sees me, and and he knows exactly who I am. Verse 26, if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what it seems good. He's saying, I don't actually need to hide even behind this official icon of God's presence. God sees me. God knows me. God has been dealing with me and is dealing with me now. If he chooses to bring me back, he will bring me back. If he chooses that this is the last time I ever see Jerusalem, that is his will and I will rest in it. It's actually wonderful to see how God has turned David here in terms of a spiritual example. He's not a weak, cowardly king crawling out of Jerusalem under the attack of a strong man. He's a teachable, godly man who is seeking the will and the pleasure of God and sees this as the right way to achieve it with the least amount of collateral damage to God's people. Well, secondly, after a son who spit in his father's eye, let's talk about an outsider's unbreakable loyalty to this true king, because there's a minor figure in this text. And unless you were happen to be reading this passage, you'd never hear of him as far as I know. I didn't actually look in a concordance if his name comes up anywhere else, but he's sure not a major figure, I'll tell you that. And it's in verse 21, which in some ways is the pivotal verse of this chapter as this man Itai. Now, Itai the Gittite, has an interesting sound to it. It means he's from the city of Gath. And where's Gath? That was the eastern coastland near the Mediterranean where the Philistines dwelt. And we know about Gath from the life of David because who came from there? Goliath. Itai is a man of the Philistines, the same tribes against which David warred in his early years, the same tribe that produced uh, Goliath, his great enemy that he brought down. Here's a man who at some point had come over to David with 600 warriors who had served David. And now, as this procession goes out of the city, David sees Ittai at the head of 600 Philistines cavalry riding out. And he says, my friend, how wonderful of you to come but this is strange. Why would you accompany me? You, you've been a recent friend, but you don't owe me anything. Why don't you go stay in the city and my son will take care of you? He won't regard you as an enemy. Go back. May God deal kindly with you. I love the answer of Ittai. What a great man of God he proves to be by this one declaration. By the life of Jehovah and the life of my Lord the King, Wherever my lord the king is, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. What an irony. David's premier son is his dire enemy, and a former enemy is his sworn best friend. Ittai reminds me of a few other biblical people. One you might think of quickly would be Ruth. In the Old Testament, she too, a foreigner, not an Israelite, promised to go with her mother-in-law and help protect Naomi when she was widowed and had to go to a new place. And Ruth said those famous words, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Isn't that exactly what Itai was saying? I think, too, of a, a name that we could put on a Bible trivia quiz and probably catch most of you. It would have caught me if I hadn't prepared the sermon, by the way. Second, Second Timothy chapter one, a very, very minor New Testament character that Paul mentions with a telling phrase when he speaks about Onesiphorus. Second Timothy 1:16, Paul says, Onesiphorus, who often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains." a minor character who came to Paul when everybody else had been either forced to or wanted to abandon him. This man showed him deep friendship. Jesus, of course, had his disciples at the Last Supper in Luke 22. He says, you are those who continued to be with me in my many trials. Green trees under which you can rest and find shade from the hot sun of hostility and crisis and conflict. You can march almost anywhere with friends like this beside you. Well, maybe you're wondering what… All right, this is an interesting story, a kind of strange story, but how does it relate to us today? I'm going to pick up this one thread of Ittai's companionship and declaration and tell you that I find in it a strong application to the life of the church today. You realize that what Ittai said here in verse 21 is exactly what every Christian is challenged to say and to mean in deep sincerity to Jesus as our reigning Lord and King. There's a real sense in which we must choose day in and day out to continue and persevere in faith, recognizing the lordship and the monarchy of a king, a king over all things, who does not have today the masses on his side and, as a matter of fact, never has had. Those who follow Christ in spirit and truth have been throughout all of history since the first century to the 21st century an embattled minority. We've always been a minority, sometimes more embattled or less embattled. And we've always had smooth-talking upstarts come along to woo us and say, come to me, I've got a better product for you than Jesus has to offer. And they heap some kind of scorn or criticism upon Christianity in our Bible. And the question comes to us to say, will you say to Christ this, As surely as my Lord lives, wherever my eternal king leads, that's where I will go, whether it means life or death. Because that, in essence, was the exact cry of Paul in Philippians 3.10 when he said, My whole goal in life and death is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in the fellowship of his suffering." There are many, many people who claim some kind of general allegiance to Christianity who personally sacrifice nothing to follow Jesus as Lord. There are whole Christian denominations that have sold away their entire birthright of loyalty to Christ to follow the cries of an Absalom or some party of Absaloms in this world. There are people to whom being Christ's disciple means, sure, I come to a church. It's a good thing on Sunday morning to start out the week with some meditation on Scripture and a few nice hymns and perhaps a little uplift or or, uh, inspiration to carry me through the week. But what we expect back is God to keep the blessings coming and to just keep me in my comfort zone of happy American life And if the comfort zone is disrupted somehow by ill health or financial misfortune or lost jobs or family disruption or whatever, God's not doing his job, so I'm not sure how loyal I'll be to him. How many of us bargained upon joining King Jesus as he passes through the present world's social order, now more and more determined all the time by an aggressive kind of humanism that despises the Word of God and even has our own government turned as its ally against us. A disciple's self-sacrifice means willingness to follow the path of God and Christ and the Word of God, whatever it reveals, wherever it leads, and that will be and is a lonely path. Young people, I give you no illusions. When my grandchildren are my age, and I'm talking to young people in this room who are the age of my grandchildren, you will be more an embattled minority as a Christian than we are today. Everything is going that way. You will not be more comforted or more applauded by your government a stand for Christ. You will be less so than we are today. That is just about a certainty. We need to wake up. The kind of courage of conviction required from first century Christians is now increasingly being required from 21st century Christians. Who is going to stand with the king who is abused, despised, Look at what happened in chapter 16. I didn't go that far, but glance at it if you have your Bible open. Look at a man named Shimei, 16, 5 and following. This man was absolutely open in his despising of David. As the king was moving out of Jerusalem, it says he threw stones at David and dirt at him and said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. That's the king he was doing that to. And David said, don't stop him. Don't stop him. What he's saying may be true. Well, there are plenty in the world today that are glad to throw dirt and stones at Jesus Christ and say, get out, get out, you worthless Christ. Get out of our public square. We have no use for you. To be a Christian, when people were first called Christians in the city of Antioch, it meant they were Christ's men. Christ's women. You and I need someone to exercise sovereign lordship over our lives, and it needs to be someone we can adore, whom we can know is absolutely right at all times, in all circumstances, to whom we can pray to whom we can worship, in whom we can hope that He is returning to consummate history and returning to draw to Himself at the end of history those who belong to Him. Do you belong to Him now? Will you stand with Him now? Folks, I'm telling you, I, I feel a strong turning point in my ministry of four decades. The turning point is away from any allowance of half-hearted loyalty and lukewarm allegiance that has always been unworthy of the Son of God. But today it's also useless. The world we live in is saying, who do you stand with? Who do you stand with? Will you be counted as an ambassador of the world's greatest king while he dwells in exile, in disrepute, and while humanism… And that which rejects the Word of God utterly heaps scorn upon him and even makes a stand for his moral principles to be illegal it 's getting to the point where civil disobedience is going to be required from god 's people in certain areas, if things go as they are going, ladies and gentlemen hebrews thirteen twelve exhorts disciples of Jesus. With this challenge, I think it's what I leave you with today, Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus suffered where? Outside the city gate. Not in the seat of government where Pilate ruled. Outside the gate, actually at the garbage dump. Outside the gate he suffered to make his people holy. So, said the author of Hebrews, let us go to him outside the camp to bear the disgrace that he bore. For here on this earth, we have no continuing city. Is your Christianity the kind that says, O oh God, wherever my King, my Lord Jesus Christ shall lead, that is where I want to be found, whether it means life or death? Maybe you say, oh, you're making it a lot more serious than it is. I do not think so. I beg to differ. There is no other kind of Christianity than the kind that says that. And there never has been. Father, I pray that we could be Ittai's, this obscure man once an enemy of your people, who took his sword and his cavalry and all the families that were with them? it says their little ones too, and pledged himself to king, the true king. Father, may your people be faithful. You call us to be faithful. You give us the strength because we don't have it ourselves. Give us the wisdom. Give us the discernment. Give us the courage to stand with the king for his honor and praise. Amen.